0: Everybody. Welcome back to Suspect. I'm Katie. And I'm Hannah. And this is the show where we don't just want to feed into that true crime obsession, but we want to shed some
1: light on stories and situations that really don't get a ton of attention. And today, Katie, I can't speak for your story, but I know mine is wild. Oh, I'm I so feel excited like I say that hear. every
0: week. <laughs> I know. It's okay. It's okay. We should have the it. It's Wild podcast network. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Forget Suspect. <laughs> right by suspect it's wild yeah hannah mine today is actually pretty wild too um i'm so excited to hear yours especially because our topic this week is legal system failures and guys welcome back um i know it's been for well for you guys a couple weeks but for us it's actually been a couple months we've just been super busy there's been a lot going on in the world as all of you know with the pandemic and then the black lives matter movement and all the politics crap that we're not even going to get into but all of that going on in the world obviously has caused us to just have our focuses elsewhere for the past couple months we had to get our affairs in order and now we are back and we are ready to jump right into our stories today and from here on out yeah heck yeah so hannah i guess i should ask you how you've been during the pandemic you've been doing okay you're obviously still alive yeah, I've been good. Um,
1: our family's been good. No one, um, I mean, like, I know people, of course, who've had it because, you know, that's just the reality of life, um, right. right now. But, um, and everyone I know who's had it has recovered and it's been like super amazing. Um, we're super fortunate and thankful for that. Uh, but I've, you know, I've been good. I've been working my butt off. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: good, yeah, Just kind okay. of figuring
1: it out day by day. I feel like that's what we're all kind of in that situation right now. Um, but what about you? How are you doing, Katie?
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely am right there with you. I've been working a lot, very thankful to still have a job, obviously. I know a lot of people were not so fortunate during these time. Um, you know, I moved to a big new city, and then all this happened, and I've just been here <laughs> trying to figure it out. So, you know, it's definitely – a little bit of a process but you know i definitely feel like it's something that has helped me grow in multiple ways and i am thankful for that i can't complain and i haven't had covid i personally haven't known anyone that's had covid i've heard of obviously a lot of different stories and some not so fortunate some people did not recover and that obviously breaks my heart and then i'm very thankful for the people that did recover so yeah. I hope all this ends soon yeah. and everybody gets better. I guess is the only thing I can really say.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we got to we got to find a way to get through this.
0: So guys, as you also know there's been a lot going on in like the news and the media. We're not going to get too much into it, but I do want to say right here that obviously Every life matters. We need to be more cautious of what we're doing and what we're saying and how we're treating people, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their religion, regardless of anything that you might want to judge them for. We just all need to love everybody equally. We need to be willing to stick up for people that we see are being wronged because you would want somebody to do that for you at the end of the day. And, um Yeah, I guess that's all I really want to say about that at this moment, and we need to save our children. That's important. Please make sure that if you see any children in public at all being messed with, that you immediately step in. Do not let that be a thing, guys. That is something that obviously has been really talked about lately in the media, especially with the pedophile ring. Stuff going on I don't even know what to say about it I get flustered talking about it I'm sure Hannah and I will probably end up maybe doing an episode on all of that possibly because that's something that we've talked about but please make sure you're watching out for the little ones I guess is all I can really say I have little siblings and I know Hannah has a younger sister so you know just love everybody please love everybody and protect everybody <laughs> for real and we gotta look really out for like each it. other really like I know it's all it's bad so <laughs> so difficult because it's like i just want to say that like can everybody just shut up everybody just listen regardless of what your religion politics i don't give a crap about any of it can we just all be nice can can we just like each other and like love each other and stick up for each other because it's it's not hard yeah Yeah, i think that's
1: like most of the problem in the world but no one like everybody just is so worked into a frenzy right now like no one can listen to each other i'm like let's just just listen Right, yeah, everybody's it.
0: mad at something.
1: Just, like, take a chance and consider the possibility that you might not have
3: the absolute right viewpoint.
1: Right. And I feel like I, that applies to literally every dumpster fire going on in the world right now.
3: No, I mean, like I single one agree. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. It's all, all, it's of all bad. Them, all all <laughs> of them all over the world. <laughs> yeah. It's all bad. Yeah. yeah, no, it is. I mean, it's obviously, guys, this has been, like, a very... Different year, I guess, is the best way to describe that. I I don't think we've ever seen a year where so much has popped up at once. And I think that that's why everybody's in a frenzy. It's like all of this happened at oh, yeah. once. It, was, it wasn't like, you know, a year apart. So yeah. I guess, guys, my best advice to you at this time is, you know, just make sure you're taking this time to focus on your responsibilities, what's best for you in your life, and just make sure you're being nice. That's all. <laughs> that's it. That's what yeah. I leave you with. And, like, what's
1: crazy to me is how, like, when I was reviewing this case and everything, working on it, building it, is because it's legal system failures and everything, and I'm, like, could it be more appropriate for the world? Like, it just seems like everything's a failure right now, and we're talking about these two legal system right. failure cases, and I'm, like, all right. This right. Is perfect timing, It's not. Hannah. It's not anything new. Like, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. It's, like. Most of the problems going on, they're not new, it's just something we've started to pay more attention to. Which right. is crazy, it is, is as it is right now. Um, I'm kind of encouraged by the fact that like it's all coming out because it's forcing us to deal with it, right? No, and
0: Cause I, I 100%, 100% agree
1: because like most of these problems I feel like have been going on for a long time, obviously. Um, and then it's just, it's just kind of something we just would ignore, but now they're all getting talked about. I'm like, yes, there's huge, huge divides about all of it, but also like, I mean, we're talking about it. Like human trafficking is something I didn't hear about pretty much until I went to college, right? At least in the U.S. Like I, I knew it happened in the rest of the world, but like, like human trafficking, we're talking about it, you know?
0: So yeah, it's just finally being, but yeah.
1: So yeah, I just I'm encouraged by the fact that it's a dumpster fire right now because like at some point it's gonna get worked out. I believe that. I have I have a
0: lot of hope for that. No, I mean I. It has to get better, right? Right, it has to. Right, if it doesn't, we're all screwed. Like if it it's gonna be an apocalypse. Like, but I mean, no, I mean, I 100% wholeheartedly agree. It's like. Now that this pandemic has been going on, we've all, you know, been forced to kind of change our reality and our schedules and we have more Mm -hmm. time to pay attention to these things and that they're coming out, like you said, and I'm with you. Like I'm, I'm somebody that, I mean, I know you're like this too, because I know you, but when I hear about these things, I immediately get anxious, but then I'm immediately encouraged that this information was put out and it's not a Mm secret anymore And you're exactly right. We have to deal with it. It has to get better. All this information that's been released about every single dumpster fire, there's no way we can just ignore that and turn back and say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not happening. These kids aren't being trafficked. No, we're going to talk about it and we're going to fix it and we're going to shut it the heck down. Like, (laughs) Yeah. And, like, the
1: the way to, like, fix these problems, like, you know, with race problems and, you know, trafficking issues you know violence whether domestic or you know just random acts of horrible violence like all these things the ways to fix them is to shed light on them and not to just keep brushing them under the rug or acting as if each occurrence isn't important um and you know that just takes me right back to like I know my case specifically like because I think a lot of times you know lawyers and the judicial system is like glorified but also it's still a system run by people who can be right. corrupted and make 100%. mistakes and make errors in judgment and we need to talk about that too because I know I know specifically in my case I'm not going to give too much away right now but <laughs> I know that defense attorneys get a lot of crap for being weasels and like snakes and you know corrupt and just sleazy kind of back alley kind of people. Um, But the prosecution in my case is the least like sleazy one. So, you know, shedding light on that's like, that's the beauty of our podcast and like what we're doing is just like shedding light on things that like, don't get talked about. And I feel like, you know, the world's catching on.
0: (laughs) No, no. I mean, I completely agree. And that I'm with you. And that's why I love our podcast and we get to talk about these things and, you know, guys, we make jokes out of some things on the podcast, but that's our way of coping with what we're talking about. Yeah, that's about. how got a deal. I, right. Yeah. I mean, you can't... These are dark. These are dark. We're talking about people being stabbed and propped up and, like, all kinds of things. And it's like, these are awful situations. And, like, none of it is funny, but we have to be able to cope with what's going on in the world, and we have to be able to have a way to shed light on these situations. And I'm glad that we get to talk about them. I'm glad that we get to educate people on cases maybe that they didn't know and crap even some of the cases we talk about I think I know everything about them and then I go back and I'm reading them and I'm like oh my gosh I I don't remember that like that's crazy yeah it's like what what did they call the serial killer a couple weeks ago Oh, gosh. I don't know. You said something at the end of that podcast I don't remember. episode. You said they were chopping and butching or something like that. Something
1: some totally irreverent. And then I'm just like, oh, my gosh. Like, he's an extra monster. But, Bro, when know, I was
0: editing that, I literally laughed so hard I was crying. Like,
1: I think that was the Ed Kemper episode. It was. Oh, my gosh. He's a mess. Yeah. <laughs> he's a mess. He's a flower
2: in yeah. the
0: attic Star Wars mess. <laughs> That's the nicest thing I can say about him. <laughs> All right. Well, we can go ahead and jump right into it. I go first this week because Hannah went first on the last episode with It's a Mess at Kemper. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my nice. case today is um, pretty crazy. I'm not going to tell you what the legal system failure is. I'm going to let you guess. Um, <laughs> so I don't know if you've heard of James Joseph Richardson. Have you heard of him? Oh, I have not. Okay. Well, perfect. We're going to, we're going to get it popping and chopping. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is actually a case from Florida. I was feeling a little um, homesick and I was like, you know what? Let me find something from Florida because Florida just has the best cases as it is.
1: Oh but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's like an example of literally every crime. I mean, Epstein was from Florida. Like what, what more could we do?
0: Right, right. Let me find something from Florida. Um, So I'm going to jump right into it and I'm going to tell you guys about James Richardson. So my story, like we were talking about earlier, is kind of perfect for the time and what's been going on. Um, James Richardson is actually a black man who was convicted in 1968 for the October 1967 murders of his seven children. So at the time of the murders, yeah, at the time of the murders, Richardson was um, actually an immigrant farm worker in Arcadia, Florida, living with his wife. And her name was Anna Marie Richardson, and they were living with them and their children. So we're going to go ahead and jump right into that dark day in 1967. So on October 25th, 1967, the seven Richardson children, raging in age from two to eight, they consumed food that was poisoned with an agricultural pesticide. So six of the children died that day. Betty, who was eight, Alice was seven, Susie, age six, Doreen was five, Vanessa was four, and James Jr. was two. The seventh child, Diane, who was three years old at the time, died the next day. Betty and Alice were from Annie Richardson's previous marriage, while James was the father of the five youngest children. So the night before, Annie Marie, James's wife – oh, Annie May. Have I been saying Marie this whole time? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Annie May. I'm just biased towards the middle name Marie because that's my middle name and I think everybody's (laughs) middle name should be Marie. Okay. Um, so, the night before, on October 24th, 1967, Annie May, James' wife, had prepared a lunch of beans, rice, and grits for her children. The meal was placed in a locked refrigerator for the night. In the morning, the Richardons left to work um, at the Orange Groves, which is about 16 miles away from their home. Their neighbor, Bessie Reese, was delegated to take care of their children while their parents were at work. The oldest four children were enrolled in School, and that day they came home to eat lunch. After they returned to school that afternoon, their teachers noticed that they were showing some really weird symptoms and the principal immediately took them to the hospital, which like side note, that's, that's crazy. Like the principal took them to the hospital. Like how nice. <laughs> like I've never heard of that. <laughs> the sixties is a whole other time, dude. I know you're right. You're <laughs> right. I forget. We're born at a whole other time. I know, Sometimes I God, wish I was like born eight months
1: old at the point of this story. So, oh really? it's a long time oh. ago. Oh, yeah. am yeah. 67.
0: Cool. I'm excited. I like the oldies. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah. Timmy's going 54 this year, y'all. He's old.
0: Oh, oh my gosh. Timmy. <laughs> we love him. Tim's so cute.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you haven't seen his quarantine beard?
3: <laughs> oh, I have. I Trust me. I saw a picture
0: your mom posted on Facebook. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Lord. <laughs> the world has been
1: exposed. <laughs> right.
0: <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, no, you're fine. I was laughing too. I had to stop myself. <laughs> okay, guys. So the principal took them to the hospital immediately. One of the teachers went to check on the three kids that were at home, and she found them to be sick as well. So they were taken to the hospital as well at that time. Um, word was sent to their parents that just one of their children was sick and that a parent needed to come to the hospital most of them left the groves to go to the hospital, and they had no idea that all uh, they had no idea that six of their children were already dead by the time they left. Oh my gosh! So Joseph, I have no idea how to pronounce his last name. Joseph Minowa. <laughs> we're just going to call him Joseph H. Joseph H. Um, was head of the Arcadia Police Department, and he was the first officer to arrive at the hospital that day. He was determining that all of the sick children were from the same family, and he went to their apartment building and searched it and quarantined any potential poison that he thought maybe was still intact. He found nothing in the apartment indicative of a poison except an insect spray, and he didn't think that that could have been the cause of the children's poisoning to the point of them dying, so he rushed back to the hospital. The Arcadia Police... Tr- uh-uh. The Arcadia Police... Arcadia, it stresses me out because I'm saying Katie, <laughs> <that> yeah. Arcadia? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Arcadia Police Chief Richard Bernard and DeSoto County Sheriff Brent Klein were among the next law enforcement officers to examine their apartment. Bernard and Klein went into the unlocked apartment and they said that they noticed a very strong smell but no sign of any poison at all. Klein believed that the poison might be a pesticide and he went to the shed behind the apartment building to search it and he didn't find any poison there either. Reporters started to flock to Arcadia to cover the breaking news of the death. Frank Schaub, a prosecuting attorney in the area, did a prosecuting attorney in the area did respond to the reporters and he gave them accounts of his investigation in the house at that time. So the next morning after the death of the last child, Diane, um, a two-pound sack of the agricultural, agricultural I don't know why I'm slurring that, <laughs> agricultural <laughs> pesticide, <laughs> um, was found in the shed. So Clyde, Bernard, their staff, and Schaub all agreed that the bag of pesticide had had not been there the day before when they had checked the area, and they said that they had searched around five times. They thought that whoever had placed the pesticide stack was also probably the person who had poisoned the children. Conflicting reports on how the pesticide stack was found was given to law enforcement. Okay, so the first officer that had arrived, Joseph H., that we were talking about earlier, was told by Bessie Reese, the babysitter, that Charlie Smith, who was a Black resident of Arcadia, had discovered the pesticide. When he asked Bernard, who called in the discovery to the police station, he was informed that it was an anonymous mail caller. So the next day, Klein and Schaub's local assistant, his name is John Treadwell, he told the reporters that Richardson had discussed insurance policies for the children the night before their deaths. It was determined that the insurance salesman, George Purvis, talked to Richardson just hours before the children were poisoned. The children's funeral was held on that Sunday. Both Richardson and his wife collapsed in sorrow at the service. National news, magazines, television, radio networks covered the funeral. This put Sheriff Klein at the center of a nationwide attention. Barnard later told the attorney Mark Lane that Klein saw the chance to make a big name for himself and he needed to make an arrest really bad. Two days after the funeral, Klein charged Richardson with seven counts of murder in the first degree. However, police chief Barnard said there is no case against that man. Treadwell, charged with prosecuting the case if it came to trial, agreed with Barnard. The murder warrants were dropped, but both Richardsons were formally charged with neglect. Hi. Yeah, I know. It makes no sense. I guess they were trying to say they neglected them with the poison in some way. I mean, I it really just makes no sense. There's no case for the neglect either, but 60s. So,
1: so pretty much the only evidence against Dad right now is that he discussed insurance
0: policy? Yep, yep. That's okay. the only thing they have against him at this time, is that they think that sounds sketchy, so he must have something to do with it.
1: I mean, you know, it's a little sketchy, but also like all of his kids are super young,
0: so... Right. Really?
1: I feel like that makes sense. But
0: I don't know. keep going. Tell me more. Right, right. And you're going to take all seven of them out at the same time? For real. That's a feat. Right. Let's see here. At the press conference the next day, Klein announced that Richardson had five other children who had died under mysterious circumstances in another Florida city and that his what? motive for the crime, Mm hmm and that his motive for the crime was to collect the insurance money on the children, which would total almost $14,000. Judge Hayes said that both Richardson and his wife had taken lie detector tests, and the results showed that the Richardsons had knowledge of the poisoning, which indicated that he was guilty. And then I, I made a little side note right here, and I said, thank goodness it's 2020 now. We know that these aren't sufficient enough to hold up in court. Exactly.
1: Exactly. Oh my goodness. Thank goodness
0: that we know like, lie detector tests
1: are not. I mean, all of your children just died. of course you're like, all of your senses that they test on a lie detector test are going to be all of those. Like you have no children anymore.
0: Right. You're all of your, your blood pressure, everything's spiked. I have anxiety right now and I, they could pull me in for a lie detector test and I'm telling you I fail that thing. And I would have no idea what they're talking about, but just because I'd be like, to be sitting in a freaking chair in a room full of cops like are you kidding oh yeah 100%
1: if I was like innocent and they pulled me in for a lie detector test I'd be so furious that they thought it was me and they were wasting time looking at me instead of looking at somebody else I would be all over the place um okay also he had five other children die of mysterious causes causes, circumstances whatever
0: um, I, I don't think that's true. I think that that is just something oh, okay, that he's, okay. yeah, because I don't, I don't have, unless I'm wrong, and I'll correct myself later on in my story, but I, I don't think that's true. I think that that was something that he was just kind of throwing out there to say, like, oh, hey, okay. like, this isn't the first time he did this kind of thing.
1: Okay. When you said that, I was like, uh, okay, Katie, are you sure it's a legal system failure? Oh, right, God. right.
0: You can't see. Yeah, it's, <laughs> okay, it's a failure. <laughs> OK, so the coroner's jury held a hearing on November 2nd, 1967, at which Judge Hayes said we will meet today to instruct Frank Klein to file murder charges against Richardson. This statement carried considerable weight in Arcadia, including with the handpicked jury because of Hayes's prominent standing in the county and the fact that he had been a judge in Arcadia for more than 31 years. John S. Robinson, a 30-year-old white lawyer, became concerned over the media coverage of the Arcadia murders. He believed that the case was being handled unfairly, as the judge constantly claimed that Richardson was guilty. He contacted people who knew Richardson, and they told him he had a reputation as a family man and that they would never suspect him for killing his children. He would never do it. Robinson went to talk to Richardson while he was being held in the county jail before the trial took place. Richardson was adamant that he had not killed his children. He loved them very much. Richardson said Sheriff Klein was pushing him around and calling him the N-word and questioning him in a very mean way every day. Klein had told Richardson, yeah, which is terrible. That's That's not okay. Yeah, not at all. Klein had told Richardson that he would be let off easy if he confessed to the crime, but he denied that he had ever harmed any of his children. Through Ernol Washington, another prisoner, Robinson also discovered that Klein placed an eavesdropping device in his cell whenever Robinson was going in there to talk to Richardson. Robinson later found the microphone and removed it, letting Sheriff Klein know that he had found it. Which I love. I love when, like, lawyers and, like, police officers, like, have beef with each other and they're, like, just, like, excuse my French, like, smartasses with each other. Like, hey, buddy, guess what I found? Here you go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Robinson filed for a right of habeas corpus through which a person can report an unlawful detention or imprisonment to a court and request that the court orders the custodian of the person, usually a prison official to bring the prisoner to court to determine whether the detention is lawful. And after examining the available evidence and finding nothing substantial that you could indicate Richardson was guilty, he then Contested the high bonds that had been set, which started at a hundred thousand dollars, which is a lot back in the sixties. Like you're trying to say that this man killed his man, his whole family for fourteen thousand dollars, and his bonds a hundred thousand.
1: Yeah, which like, you know, back in the day, fourteen grand was quite a bit of money, but like you said, that's not even close. Like the fourteen thousand. You don't have a hundred thousand.
3: I'm looking up what
1: fourteen thousand dollars is today. Well, I know fourteen. They have, the other day, Mimon told me they got their brand new Mustang in sixty-seven for two thousand so, dollars. Oh my gosh! Fourteen grand, I feel like is a crap ton. Fourteen
0: thousand dollars. Okay, so let's see. We're talking about nineteen sixty-seven and twenty twenty. A hundred and nine thousand dollars, I mean, three hundred and fifty dollars. Shut your mouth. Yeah, hundred and nine, three hundred what the frick I could that's spend a that. lot of money. Almost hundred and ten thousand dollars. I could definitely spend that. I got a lot of things I could spend that on.
1: That would pay for my student loan. Hey, if any of our listeners got a hundred and nine thousand dollars laying around there, something to give it to. Right.
0: If anybody wants <laughs> to be um if anybody wants to be Sorry, I don't know what's without the <laughs>
3: Yeah, adopt me, please.
0: Adopt me, please. Seriously, (laughs) I know. Why? Why do all these sugar daddies want sugar? I just want money. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to send you feed pictures. I just want you to drop money in my bank account and for me to say hi like once a week. That's it. (laughs) Like I got, I got a message on Instagram the other day from this guy. It was,
1: you know, of course his Instagram bio was sugar daddy looking for a sugar baby to spoil, and I was like. (laughs) and then he messaged me and was like hello beautiful lady do you live in or around the Americas and I was like (laughs) no baby I
0: don't no baby no baby no (laughs) no you know what when they I have a lot of those message me too on Instagram and I don't even I just respond with my cash app I just respond with my cash app I'm like if you're serious (laughs) if if you're serious send me some money we don't need to have a conversation but if you're not serious get the out of my messages like I don't have time I love it
1: (laughs) (laughs) oh my gosh yeah sometimes like if I'm super bored at work I'll respond just to not like obviously with interest but you know just to be like you know is this person a real person are they a
0: catfish are they what's going on here you're interested you like those 67 year olds (laughs) yeah (laughs) Okay, let's get back here. Okay, so Robinson, his lawyer, contested the high bond um, that had been set, which originally had started at $100,000. And after negotiations, the bail was reduced to 7500 and Robinson was able to have Richardson released on bail. Gotcha. So er- Ernell Washington, James Weaver, and James Cunningham, who had all been cellmates with Richardson in the Arcadia Jail, said that Richardson had admitted to them that he had killed his children. Judge Justice revoked the bail, ordered Richardson to be jailed again, and asked for a change in venue to Fort Myers in the next county. Attempts by Robinson to move the trial to a potentially fairer county were denied. The trial began on Monday morning, May 27, 1968, at the Lee County Courthouse. All of the chosen jurors were white. Despite numerous challenges, Robinson was unable to secure a different jury. During the trial, the most um, sensational development was when Klein claimed that there was evidence that at least three of Richardson's children had been killed in another county and a further three who had become ill but had not died. Bessie Reese gave evidence that she divided up the meal into seven equal parts once the children came home from school at about five minutes till 12. Treadwell, who was conducting the examination of Reese, established that she was on parole at time, but they did not ask her what charge that she had been convicted on. Treadwell did Mm. not want the jury to find out that she was on parole for having murdered her husband. No other questions about her involvement in the preparation of the food were asked. When asked about finding the sack of pesticide, she became more specific, claiming that Charlie Smith had wanted to look for the sack and went straight to the shed, pulling a board off the window and discovering the sack. And she was implying that Charlie Smith had prior knowledge of the location of the pesticide. Then an unknown woman saw them retrieving the sack and called the authorities. Charlie Smith was in the courtroom, but was not asked to testify at this time. The next, I know, right? What's the tea? Interesting. What's popping, Bessie? <laughs> <laughs> Besides your husband, that you popped, like what the frick? <laughs> you popped your husband. The next witness was um, Gerald Purvis, the insurance salesman. He claimed that the he claimed that he had called Richardson on the twenty fourth. It was not determined whether he was invited or whether he was just trying to sell from door to door. Purvis testified that he had talked about family plans with Mr. Richardson at this time, but Mr. Richardson could not pay the premiums. He decided that he would come back in about a week. Shredwell insisted that Purvis left with the impression that a policy was in place, but Purvis adamantly denied this. So it's like, y'all are just trying to get people to lie. Yeah. A pathologist and a chemist concluded that the three children had, in fact, died from the pesticide which was found in their stomachs and on utensils in the Richardson's apartment. Several law enforcement officers, including Bernard Klein and Joseph H. testified that they had searched the shed and they had not seen the bag of pesticide there on October 25th. Charlie Smith testified about finding the bag of pesticide in the shed. Um, His story agreed with Reese's and he was quickly excused. The jury then retired to the evidence and a half hour later on May 31, 1968 returned with a unanimous verdict. Death was premeditation at the hands of James Richardson and parties or parties unknown. Jurors recommended the death penalty for Richardson. Judge Hayes had Charlie Smith arrested as a material witness and set bond for him at $2,000. No other witness was jailed. After the hearing, chief of police barnard believes that there was still no case against richardson richardson was sentenced to die by the court and was on death row for nearly five years he was saved by the u.s supreme court ruling in 1972 that the death penalties in the u.s at the time were unconstitutional his sentence was commuted to life in prison with eligibility for parole in 1993 wow yeah, I know. This this is a terrible story. It's so sad. Like I just can't imagine like I feel like we've just I've just been like reading and like talking, but I just can't imagine like losing your seven kids and then like just being like convicted because of the time period and you know, your skin color, like you didn't have a chance. Yeah. They didn't they didn't want to listen to anything that you said. They didn't care. They saw your skin and they said, You're you're dirty, you did this like basically and it's like this man lost all seven of his children. Like, I can't imagine like having to go through that or like the mindset or like the emotional toll, you know? No, like like, everything about
1: this poor man's life. And I mean, like what's crazy to me is that like this whole charade started like when my dad was a baby and then, you know, spanned on and on and on and on. his his whole life, like his babies were gone. I I'm sorry. I'm not making any coherent sense. I'm just I'm reeling.
0: No, because I mean, but it's it's the truth. Horrifying. It's a horrifying story. Yeah, it's it's absolutely terrible. It's crazy. You haven't heard of this? Isn't that nice? I'm glad. I I love when we do cases that the other person hasn't heard of though. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I'm glad I heard it because that poor man, and poor, family. poor wife, you know, like, I mean, he's, you know, having to go through it and everything, but like she's also lost all of her children and her husband.
0: Right. Like, and you're, and you're just being made out, like, you know, yeah. whatever the media was back in 1967 that you were a part of it too, regardless of whether you were arrested or not.
1: Yeah. For all intents and purposes, she became like a childless widow all in the course of, you know, However long the whole thing took, probably a matter of a couple
0: of days. days. Well, many clues had been overlooked or hidden that would have pointed to Richardson's innocence. Mark Lane, who is an internationally known trial attorney and author, had visited Richardson on death row. Richardson asked Lane to represent him, and Lane began an exhaustive investigation. And in 1970, published his findings in the book Arcadia in which he revealed that the babysitter, Bessie Reese, was a convicted murderer and indicated that Richardson and his wife were innocent. At the time of the children's murders, Reese was on parole for killing her ex-husband using poison. The prosecutor had worked hard to keep this from coming up at trial. Little had been done to pursue her involvement with the children's deaths at all, including the fact that she had given them food and that she had initially lied, saying that she had not gone into the apartment at all that day. As of 1988, Reese, suffering from Alzheimer's disease and in a nursing home in Arcadia, had reportedly confessed to the murders more than 100 times, but her confessions were not taken seriously because of her condition. She died of Alzheimer's. Right. Right. Like, she's she's not going to. You forget stuff. She's telling you. Like. Okay. She continued. Yep, yep, yeah, I know, I know. She died of Alzheimer's in nineteen ninety-two. Also, the last surviving witness to Richardson's alleged jail cell confession recanted his testimony to state legislators, saying that he had been offered a lighter sentence in return for the testimony. Further, the investigation into the children's deaths had been pretty inadequate. Leads were never pursued, critical questions were not answered, inconsistencies were never resolved. So Remus Griffin, a man who at the time had been dating the secretary um, of Fred Will, one of the the deputies that had been involved in the case, met Lane and his wife at a town meeting called The End of Silence Free James Richardson, and then took one of the three copies of the complete original file on the case and gave it to Lane. Lane then met with the governor's counsel and turned the entire file over to the governor, asking for a full investigation and hearing on the Richardson case. The governor, Robert Martinez, appointed the state's attorney from Miami-Dade County, Janet Reno, to be the special prosecutor on the investigation. A number of months thereafter, on October 5th, October 25th, I'm sorry, 1989, a hearing was held in Arcadia in the same courthouse where Richardson had been convicted more than 21 years earlier. Lane appeared on behalf of Richardson and Reno appeared on behalf of the state of Florida. Lane argued and Reno agreed that a grievous injustice had been done and that the wrong person had been convicted of these crimes. There is evidence of a cover-up by Sheriff Frank Klein, State Attorney Frank Schaub, and his deputy Treadwell, as well as the local judge. After looking at all of the evidence presented by both sides and noting the inconsistency and the injustice that had been done in Arcady over two decades ago, <laughs> I'm almost done. Retired Circuit Judge Clifton Kelly said that Richardson had not received a fair trial, and he released him into the custody of his attorneys, Lane and the local council. Oh my! Like
1: I, I've just been sitting here. First of all, processing everything because you know I'm not the quickest with that. But I mean, but also, oh my! Oh my gosh, that was just like was <laughs> so much information like like i'm following i promise
0: but I'm no 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 you're good i was gonna say if you have any questions like please cut me this off this is the crazy
1: story day. this is one of the crazy stories i've ever heard
0: i, I know mean, it's wild
1: i feel like i've heard stories like this before of course because you know so much injustice has occurred um but just the specific stories, like hearing specific names and being able to put, like, faces to it. It's just heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially being from Florida. I mean, I know this is back in another time, but these these are familiar names. Like, we, these mm-hmm. are not just random police officers and judges and governors that we're hearing about. Like, we grew up in Florida, so, like, this is part of history that we had to learn in school, you know? So, it's like... Oh, yeah, like,
1: I mean, the 90s, we were born in Florida right. in the 90s you know, like, you know, a few years after this, but, like, that's, like, our, that's in our timeline, like, in our lifetime. Yep. My parents, our
0: parents' trying in our lifetime.
1: I just think it's crazy.
0: Yeah, you should ask your parents after the podcast if they remember this, because I'm sure they probably do. This happens, like, not far from there. Oh, yeah. I'm not 100% sure
1: where Arcadia is, or Arcadia is, Um, but... I said Arcadia, or no, I said Acadia because dad has an Acadia, and we makes fun of people who call it an Arcadia, <laughs> and I know that the city is Arcadia, <laughs>
0: but I'm just Acadia. Okay.
1: wow, I'm an idiot. Um,
0: it's four hours from you guys. Oh, dang. Yeah, so pretty close.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's not bad at all. I mean, a bad drive, but yeah, it's not totally bad true. at
0: all. It's not bad at all. Let's go to Arcadia, Dad.
1: <laughs> yeah,
0: vacation.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a heartbreaking story. I'm glad you taught it or told it.
0: Most yeah, um, it. just just a couple end notes here just about, you know, his life afterwards. So um, after he was released, he went to work for Dick Gregory. I don't know if you know who that is, but um, he familiar, yeah, he's an activist. He just died recently. He was a nutritionist, um, a writer, a comedian. He's amazing. Like he's just very intelligent man, like spoke a lot of life and wisdom into people and the world. And you can find YouTube videos of him talking about a lot of stuff. He's incredible. So but I didn't even know that when I was covering this case, I already knew who Dick Gregory was. And then I saw that he went to work for him and I was like, (gasps) and it has like parentheses of like all of his jobs that Dick Gregory did. And I'm like, I don't need to read all that. Like, he's amazing. I know who that is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So yeah, he went to work for Dick Gregory at a health resort in Fort Walton beach. He filed a lawsuit against DeSoto County for his wrongful prosecution and settled for $150,000
3: on yeah, August
0: that's enough. Right, right. 150,000. So right. Yeah. So on August 25th, 2008, um after his legal claims had been rejected, Richardson filed a claim under Florida's wrongful conviction law, which provides compensation for wrongful imprisonment up to $50,000 a year. So he gets his $150,000, now he's supposed to get up to $50,000 a year. Richardson had meanwhile suffered a series of setbacks after he had been released from prison. The job at the health resort ended. He suffered from several heart problems, which he attributed to prison food, poor medical care, and constant stress. He had open heart surgery while he was in prison. He and his wife who had remained loyal to him for part of the time he he was in jail, eventually divorced. The settlement by the County went to pay the cost of his local lawyers. Why Richardson had been in prison for so long that he had became eligible for social security. In August of 1995, he had a heart attack at his home in Jacksonville, Florida. He was flown with a longtime friend, media expert Steve Hoffa, to Wichica, uh, Wichica, Wichita, Kansas. <laughs> uh, for, yeah, I hate Kansas, bro. Side so note, I hate Kansas. I'm sorry to anyone that's yeah, been, I've been that's to from Wichita. Kansas. There's nothing to do. <laughs> awful on the way up to Colorado we had to drive through Kansas and I was so done like on 30 minutes in I was this is nothing but freaking cornfields and windmills yeah no 100%
1: like the because one of my friends at school because I went to school in the Midwest um she was from Wichita so we went home with her one weekend which it was the craziest circumstance that's a whole other story but literally the only thing to do is eat and there's an ice skating rink
0: yeah I believe it. There's nothing
1: It's like, Hilliard. It it's like not. Hilliard. oh my gosh, yeah, actually, Hilliard's starting to get popping now since <laughs> Hilliard's coming up. They got,
0: let me know when they get more than one stuff and then they'll be popping. <laughs> they got a new restaurant. oh
3: wow, they
0: I hate them <laughs> ratchet yeah, okay, um, so. Like I said, August 1995, he had a heart attack at his home in Jacksonville. He was flown with his longtime friend to Wichita, Kansas, um, for emergency treatment by cardiologist Dr. Joseph Gallica, who was a friend um, of the guy that flew him there. Gallica performed surgery and offered Richardson a job as a caretaker on his ranch. Richardson has lived there since, and Gallica has saved his life from multiple different vascular events. Richardson remarried to Teresa Rivers and is now retired. And then um, just two more notes and I'm done, I'm so sorry. In 2014, Florida Governor Rick Scott signed into the Law House Bill 227, which provides compensation to a wrongfully incarcerated person who was convicted and sentenced prior to December 31st, 1979. And who was otherwise exempt from other state provisions for compensation because the case may have been reversed by a special prosecutor's review, and rather than being overturned by a court, the law is so narrowly circumscribed that it is likely that Richardson will be the only one eligible for compensation underneath it. He was expected to be awarded 1.2 million dollars, and as of 2015, Richardson has not received. Any payment. What? Yep. And that is what I'm going to end you with, besides the fact that if you guys do want to go, like, watch it. I know some people like to listen to stuff and then go watch documentaries on it. That's how I am. Um, There is a documentary about Richardson and his story, and it is called Time Simply Passes. But, yep, so all of that happened, gets convicted, gets released, never gets paid, and the only settlement he got, he had to use to pay his lawyers for that whole time, like he was in jail. Oh, my gosh. And that is the case of James Richardson. Very terrible, very bad legal system failures on multiple people's parts. That's why I picked this. It wasn't just, like, one corrupt cop or, like, one corrupt, like, attorney. It was, like... Mm-hmm. No, it was the cops,
1: like the whole the system. right, them. yeah, the
0: yeah. whole system was like, no, we're locking this man up. Yeah, that was just,
1: that was, like, the whole system is not working. Ugh, I hate that story. Like, yeah, I know. I mean, it was a good, you did a good job, but I hate, I hate that story.
0: Thanks, I I hate that story, too. I always feel like I sound so scripted, but it's, like, I don't want to miss any of the details, so I'm, like, I need to make sure I'm looking at my screen like this. Oh, no, I, I don't blame you at all. You did a great job.
1: You know, there's a ton of screwed up people in that story.
0: I know. Um, freaking babysitter. Freaking babysitters, man. <laughs> I hate them, man. They're awful. <laughs>
1: we both babysit. Um,
0: <laughs> screw nannies. <laughs> <You're> for real. <laughs> um, yeah, people suck, man. It's just literally. Okay, guys, so today we have a guest on the podcast. We have Miss Kristen with us, and I had mentioned in a last episode that we were going to start asking for people to share some personal stories. So I started reaching out, started connecting with different people, trying to get some different stories for us to learn, educate ourselves, and just know that there are people going through things every day and maybe have a little bit of that experience on our podcast so we're going to go ahead and jump right into it Kristen we're so happy to have you on thank you so much for being so willing to share your story and share the details of the awful experience that you went through Um, we're just really excited to have you here and we thank you so much so feel free to go ahead and
3: get started whenever you're ready. Thank you Katie. So In that introduction, I feel like you touching on something that I went through is key. That was something that got me through the situation was if you're going through hell, keep going. I knew Mm -hmm. I couldn't just dwell in it. And I did everything I could to get through it. So it was about 11 years ago. I had moved to Arizona. I thought that I was going to live in Los Angeles and live out on the West Coast. And I had my six-year-old daughter at the time with me. And Los Angeles just was not a good fit for a single mother. Mm-hmm. And so moved understand to that. Phoenix. Understand so <laughs> yeah. And I, I there were some struggles there. It was just too big of a city. I am originally from Lansing, Michigan, so small town USA. Oh. And yeah. <laughs> I love I love small towns, but I wanted to to go somewhere that was a little bit larger. It just seemed like I had kind of outgrown home. So, we got in our car and we did a 3-day road trip and ended up deciding, okay, I'm not going to live in LA with my child. It's just too much putting too much trust out there in a big city. So I decided that I was going to move to Phoenix. I had friends that were there in the military, and I felt like it was going to be a good fit. And we're going to fast forward a little bit. And eventually I moved out on my own, and I got an apartment in a city called Mesa. And while I was there, I found or I should say encountered these two gentlemen I I would see them in the parking lot every once in a while at the apartment complex and they would say hi they were they were pleasant and it was after school the school year ended for my daughter and she ended up coming back to Michigan to visit with family and they invited me to a barbecue and my gut feeling said "Mm, I shouldn't do that But then another part of me was like, you're young, you're not going out, you're a single mom, go ahead and, you know, venture out and meet new people. And they explained to me that there was going to be a a barbecue with guys and girls that were in the area that were our age, and I was welcome to come by, and they lived right around the corner. And so I went And when I got there, there was only one guy. And Mm. that was red flag number one. He had food, but then he was like, oh, well, I think we should wait to to grill when people arrive. And then no one was arriving. And time was Mm. going by. And I was like, okay, it's starting to get dark. I, I want to go back home, so I'm going to head out. And that's when he, I guess, decided that he was going to try to have his way with me, if you will. And um, I started heading for the door, and he ended up grabbing me. And I was like, oh gosh, I mean, I'm going to go to the bathroom. So <laughs> I tell him, I have to use the bathroom, and I end up standing in the bathroom for a few minutes, and I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of here. And there was a window, but it was high. I'm short. So there was no way for me to climb um, up out of the window. But I did. I did think about it. And so I was like, okay, maybe I can get out of here um, through the front door. But when I opened the the bathroom door, he was right there. And um, he ended up sexually assaulting me. And I had a boyfriend at the time. So there was a lot of guilt for going to a a barbecue and dating someone that was in the military, that was currently overseas for a, a, a tour of duty for a year. And... I just didn't know how I would explain that to him. Right. The following day, I tried to go to work like nothing happened. And people that I worked with knew something was off about me. But I kept denying. And I was just like, no, nothing, nothing's wrong. And one of them kept persisting. And she was like, I think something is wrong. I I hope that, you know, you can tell me whenever you're ready to tell me what's going on. And when I went home that night, he was waiting for me at my door of my apartment. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So uh, this went on for about the course of nine days where he would show up at my, my apartment or be at my job lurking around, like he was following me. It finally got Thank to the point where other people were starting to pop up with him. Luckily, nothing happened when they were around, but they were affiliated with the military and could speak Spanish. And I, I know Spanish, and I was able to decipher that they were, basically trafficking people and that they were what is called in Arizona or the Southwest coyotes. So they were moving people from to and from Mexico. Oh my goodness. Damn. I literally
0: have goosebumps all over my arms right now.
3: Yeah. So for me, it was, it was really hard for me to say, okay, I'm going to tell someone. Um, there was even a point where he. Invited me to go with him to another party, if you will, and I resisted that. I was like, "Oh well, it's a, a party where there's going to be some gang members, and they're part of the Bloods, and they're I'm I'm cool with them, so you're going to be okay." But I knew everything that he had already done to me, and right. it was like he was even in denial of his own, that he didn't violate me. And um, I said, no, I I can't go. I don't remember the reason uh, that satisfied him to say, okay, you don't have to go. But he talked about that gang and there was another gang that I don't want to bring up the name of um which was part of the reason why i didn't go to police um because this other gang is um, way more violent understandable completely and and so for a long time i struggled with oh my gosh i i didn't tell the police i ended up uh, it was a weekend um And I believe it was a Sunday night. It was going to be Monday. And I knew on Monday they were planning on leaving. Like this was all conversations and deciphering the Spanish that I could understand that they were going to be leaving the house that they were living in and moving to another part of Phoenix. And that there were loads of people. One, the guy that was um, in the army So this is not the person that I was dating, but the guy that he would talk about transporting people with um, was in the Army, the U.S. Army, and Mm. would, um, they bragged once about going to a house, and because he had on his military uniform, he walked up to the door knowing that they were holding people and said I know that you have people here you you need to give them to me and was able to take these people from another home and basically take possession of them if you will. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah so just absolutely mind-blowing when I was in it and now even hearing myself talk about those details it's not they're not details that i talk about a lot. Um, but I I ended up telling my boyfriend at the time that I, it was a Sunday night, I believe, that on Monday, if you don't get a hold of me, something's wrong, something happened, and you need to call the police. And he was like, I need to know what's going on right now. And I said, I can't. And he said, well, wherever you're at, I need you to figure out a way to go for a walk, and he kind of walked me through it, and I ended up going out to my car and explaining everything, and he walked me through how to get all of my personal identification out of the car, what I was going to do with it, how I was going to get it into a bag while um, this guy was in my house, um... I ended up flying back home the next day and it was like at every airport that I had a connecting flight to get back to Michigan, my phone would ring. And as soon as I got back to Michigan, I, I discarded it. Um,
0: yeah. I would have
3: too. Definitely. The whole phone's gotta go. Yeah. Right. The whole phone, the whole entire phone. So, um, and I think that a lot of people don't realize that, you know, if somebody really wants to find you and you change out the battery or the sim card, they're still identifying information in that cell phone. So
0: Right. Exactly. Um, you gotta replace the whole
3: thing. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> so um did that, went went to therapy and worked myself Through that situation, I was able to find, luckily, free therapy called Listening Ear at Michigan State University, which is my alma mater, and there was a young lady that helped me through that situation. So I came back home, and I I could not tell my mother what was going on. It just was too hard at the time. And mm-hmm. the lady that helped me through it, her name was Jackie, which is my mother's name. So it kind of helped. They, they did not look anything like a, alike. But right, it was so a good was coping like, mechanism, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so um, her and I would sit and talk, I believe it was like one to three times a week. And um, she even went with me. I actually ended up going to Planned Parenthood because I didn't have insurance at the time. So I went to Planned Parenthood and was tested for, you know, all of the STIs that Mm -hmm. you would need to be tested for after going through something like this. It was too late to do a rape kit. Um, But the fear was that I was pregnant. And luckily, I was not. Luckily, all of the tests came back negative. But at that time, you had to wait a week to get HIV uh, test results, so okay. that was one of the hardest and nerve-wracking weeks of my life. I believe um, it. Nothing but anxiety for sure, the whole week. Yeah, yeah, it, I was on edge, but I got through it. So um, the therapy was something that I ended up having to. And let me back up and just say the girl at work ended up being on a phone call with me and the person that I was dating at the time. And she asked me, she said, you know, the way that you're reacting to all of this, and you haven't told anybody much, but by any chance were you raped? And I paused and I said yes. And had she not asked me, I don't think that I would have willingly told anyone right away. But yeah. because she was willing to ask that question, my my boyfriend jumped into action and promised her that he would get me into therapy. And that's where he found listening near. Um, And I promised her and him that I would go if he found it. And, um, I think that was also a saving grace, just having someone that was so intuitive to know, but then at the same time, it was frustrating to be back home sharing a room with my little sister and Mm -hmm. my daughter and, it it just felt like I was back at square one. I lost everything, like all of my furniture, a majority of my clothes, um, all of my daughter's toys. I mean, everything that we had in our apartment was left there. Mm. Um, So it was really an entire starting over. Yeah. But what I learned from that is that I am way stronger than I ever thought I was before that. And I know that I can go through anything. It's just a matter of putting one foot in front of the other and taking things Mm -hmm. day by day. You know, when you go through something that is traumatic, it can be, it can feel like it's never ending. And... I just want your listeners to to know that it's not forever. it feels like it in the moment, but eventually there is a time where it's not every moment so mm-hmm. the weight or the weight might be heavy, but it's able you can manage um.
0: Wow. I mean, I don't know if you are done yet, but (laughs) I am literally sitting in my room with tears in my eyes because seriously like that, that's an awful, awful situation. Like let alone having, I'm not a mother myself, but let alone having a daughter. um, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine the strength and the dignity that you would have to put in every single day to keep moving. So I admire you. I respect you. And I really look up to you because I know I can speak for me and my listeners when I say, this is the stuff that inspires us. And not only that, but when you were speaking in your story, you were talking about red flags and gut feelings. And I feel like a lot of times Sometimes we ignore those just as you tended to because of the situation at the time you were trying to accept an invitation and be nice in the new city.
3: We have stuff like
0: that happen all the time with gut feelings and a lot of times we ignore them Mm -hmm. and a lot of times we don't. And that's what I love about this podcast is we're trying to teach people don't ignore those, listen to those, Uh watch those red flags, pay attention to those because those all mean something. Your gut is telling you something for a reason. So I really, really appreciate you sharing your story with us and your daughter is very lucky to have a strong mom. Yeah, no, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. You you were powerful. (laughs) Very powerful.
3: (laughs) Thank you. I wanna say one more thing. So go ahead. Yeah. When I came home, um, it was it was hard to be a mom. Um and to be in a house with people. I wasn't ready to share my story with. And mm-hmm. it took me a year to get my family all together and tell them what happened to me. But in that time, when I came back home, I think the hardest thing for me was that I did not have a space to call my own. Um, mm-hmm. So I started journaling and because I did not have a car. I I found a job, but I had to walk to work, even though I was scared to walk to work. Every time I saw an Arizona license plate in Michigan, I would think that they were coming for me because yes. why would it, why would someone be from Arizona and Michigan? I mean, but I was paranoid. Like, why yeah, are they definitely. here in my, in this neighborhood and why are they driving past me? And now I'm going to have to try to run. And am I going to make it? Where am I going to run to? Just tons of questions. And, um, eventually instead of walking i i got a bike and you know i still had a little bit of the the paranoid thought and i would tell myself i'm okay i'm okay they're not going to come all the way here they don't know where i'm at uh i'm going to be fine and but it was a scary time for me in my own mind it was very scary but i feel like everyone has to have their place and um, for me it was journaling until I got my car and then I would put my journal in my car and then my car became my place so I would go to therapy and I would sit by this pond and I would usually cry but there would be times where I would just write in my journal Right, how I was feeling. Right, whether I was sad, angry, it wasn't usually happy for a while. Right, um, but then eventually, you know, you get to that point, or you feel like, okay, I don't need to journal. I'm happy right now. But I, I just recently went back to that spot, and it was amazing because what used to be a pond is now just like an overgrowth of, and I think it might be due to the pandemic that it's an overgrowth of, like, weeds and all these plants, and you barely see the water anymore. And for me, though, it was symbolic. Like, okay, it's not the most beautifully landscaped area right now, but this place is kind of like me. I I have grown so much that I no longer look like the person that I was back then. And it's kind of like an oxymoron. You know, it was a beautiful beautiful place to sit at when I was broken. And now it's like this, it's like this uncontrolled growth there. And I'm, I feel like I'm broken, but beautiful. And I shouldn't even say that I'm broken because I feel like I've rebuilt myself
0: yeah yeah I know so. exactly what you mean though, like you were broken before, but now there's an abundance of growth from the brokenness
3: absolutely, absolutely. I just I feel like everyone needs their space to to have some peace, so wherever you find that, if you're going through something, to remember to take care of yourself and to give yourself time to heal because it does not come overnight. And it does not come easy. It takes some work, but it is worth fighting for yourself.
0: Wow, I couldn't agree more. I love your story. I mean, obviously, I hate your story. I don't mean I love it, but I love the growth that have. Bleh, I'm sorry, the growth that has come out of your story is what I'm trying to say. Um, Thank you. Really was, yeah, no problem. That's so powerful, and I know that a lot of the listeners are women, and I have not personally gone through a situation like yours but I know a lot of my friends, a lot of listeners probably have. So guys, listen to this. Take the advice from it. Make a a space for yourself where you can learn and grow and control and make your own thoughts and know that you can grow from the brokenness and be beautiful. You already are beautiful, but you can grow from it and be even more beautiful in your growth. So we definitely really appreciate Kristen for sharing her story with us. Um Kristen Kristen, do you have like any podcasts or YouTube channels of your own that you want to plug here, any social media or anything?
3: Sure. Uh I actually am working on releasing my podcast shortly. It will be called The Core and that's The Core spelled C O E U R. So it's a dual meaning there. The core meaning the core of us, um, our, our soul, our mind, our imagination, and our unlimited potential. But in French, core means heart. So getting to the heart of the matter. And it will be an inspiring, motivational podcast. And I appreciate you allowing me to share that. Of course.
0: You guys definitely make sure to go check out CORE. Also, Heart in (laughs) French. I'm sure it'll be amazing. I've really, really enjoyed speaking with you today, Kristen. And maybe we'll have you back on future episodes if you're interested. (laughs) Absolutely. That sounds great. Well, perfect, guys. Thank you for joining us today. And make sure to go check out Kristen's podcast. And until next time, thank you so much again, Kristen. I enjoyed
3: speaking with you. All right. Thank you, Katie. Have a good night. Me too bye. Bye bye.
1: So, my story, my crap, takes place uh, in
0: Kentucky. It's oh, a Kentucky, Kentucky legal failure. Oh yeah, all kinds
1: of mess. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, the story begins on September 28, two thousand. So the start of the new millennium. Um. A man named David Cam, um, a former Indiana State Trooper, was playing basketball all day at his church, which um, I think it's like a Southern Midwestern thing. I don't know if everyone listening to this podcast knows, a lot of larger churches have a gymnasium in it, um, and like basketball is like something that's always going down. (laughs) Um, So. Like I know the church I went to when I went to school because Katie, our home church was not that big.
2: No, um, we didn't have like a gym. <laughs> <laughs> <Fair enough, this
1: laughs> building is very small. Um, but the church I went to when I was out of school in Oklahoma, we had a gym and everybody, everybody played basketball all the time. Like on non-church days, I know like a lot of the guys at school would, you know, get a text from one of the guys at the church and be like, "Hey, you guys want to come play basketball?" everybody's there all the time.
0: So Let's come play ball. that's setting
1: the scene. Yeah, exactly. That's like, that's what it was. Um, and it seems like from the search I found, like that's kind of David Kahn's life. Like he's a former state trooper, retired to pursue a family business. Um, and he's just, you know, always playing basketball at his church. So for those of you who don't understand, and think that sounds weird. It might be like a Southern Midwestern church guy culture thing. Um yeah. I could be wrong but that's been my experience. Um, <laughs> but on this tragic, horrible day, David Cam thought he was having, you know, just a day playing basketball at the church with some people. Um but he came home to just his world completely flipped upside down. Um when he came home he found his wife laying in a pool of blood on their garage floor. Mm. um and he he checked and realized that she was you know beyond help she was she was likely already passed um and that's when it hit him to think okay where are my children um and that's when he looked in in the car and found both of his children unconscious and he checked his um checked his daughter Jill and she was um he believed Based on you know checking her vital signs that she was already deceased, um but she thought that her his might be alive, so he um reached across his daughter Jill to get Brad out, try and resuscitate him um and after you know attempting that and, and failing, um he realized he needed help, so he called the police, and I've listened to the nine one one call because you know, he's a former state trooper, so he just called them directly and was like get everybody down here right now. And he's just, you know, his police chief is trying to ask him questions, but he's like, understandably just heartbroken and devastated. And he's just screaming like, get everybody down here now. I can't help him, And, oh my gosh, it's just, it's heartbreaking.
3: But yeah, yeah so that's he terrible. Came
1: home, yeah, I came home to find his wife, Kimberly, dead on the ground, found his daughter dead in her in her car seat like her seatbelt was still on Ugh. her little thing. Ugh, just it's heartbreaking. Um but he was he was charged pretty quickly um following What? What yeah yeah he was Harvard charged Day pretty trooper. quickly despite the fact that the eleven eleven People that he was playing basketball with confirmed his alibi that he had been there for the entire time that they were playing basketball, and it would be impossible for him to have gone home to kill his family mm. I mean that's keeping eleven people convinced, yeah, and I don't know about you, but I don't have eleven rider die like right. that would lie for me like that no definitely I, mean, I hope not. I hope my people wouldn't lie for me like that. I hope that my I hope my close
0: people will be like, no, I did not see her like. She is guilty. No, I'm um, snitching, Hannah. If you murder someone, I'm snitching. Yeah. Yes. Thank you.
1: I, I would hope that you would tell the truth for my family's sake. Not that I would ever do that. But, but yeah, so these 11 people, and who knows how close they are? Like, they're, I have not found anything to say that they were, like, brothers or cousins or best friends or anything like that. It's just 11 people that were playing basketball with him who confirmed that, yeah, he was there the whole time. Um, They even have a statement from someone who said that they, like, even talked to him on, like, the games that they set out. Um, So despite all that, he's charged with the murder of his wife and two children. So his wife, Kimberly's family, at first, they were, like, completely shocked. They 100% could not believe and did not believe that he did this. And then the prosecution starts to do a little bit of digging. And they found not one but several women who admitted that, yeah, at one point or another, I had an affair with David Cam. Oh. And, yeah, that kind of marred his, like, family man image pretty strongly. So that was just, like, the first nail in his coffin. And that's the first time that – um Kimberly's family kind of starts to look at him with a little bit of side eye, like, mm-hmm. um, but David insists, like, you know, he wasn't the perfect husband, um, but none of these affairs were going on currently. Like, they were past mistakes that he and Kimberly had worked through, um, and that, like, there was absolutely no way they he healed his family. So before we really get into the case, I need to tell you some really strange stuff about the crime
0: scene. Oh, let's hear it. I'm all for it. If you have pictures, something.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay, I'll send you pictures for sure. So, you know, things are starting to look fishy on his part. Like multiple affairs could be a possible, you know, motive.
2: Right. But that's
1: all circumstantial crap. You know, you gotta have the physical when it comes to this stuff. So, when you start looking at the physical that's when it starts to not look like such an open and shut case. So when you, when they were looking at the case, Kimberly's shoes were found neatly stacked on top of the roof of
0: her vehicle. What? Yeah. Like just sitting there, like she had put them there or somebody else did? It, it, I mean, her shoes
1: looked like someone had picked up her shoes and just sent, gently set them on top of the vehicle. Oh, like I'm pr- I'm pretty sure Kimberly didn't do it because it's like, oh, you know, I just got shot in the head. Let me put my shoes away real quick. <laughs> so they're so they're not in the way for the crime scene text.
0: You know, I, like,
1: I, hold on, I, sir. Could you
0: not shoot the gun yet? <laughs> yes. Yeah, let me let me take my shoes off first. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me get comfortable
1: (laughs) yeah let me go change into some yoga pants too (laughs) oh no it's so weird that her shoes are on top of the car like what the heck so remember that because we'll talk about that in a few minutes
3: also noted
1: there was there was a sweatshirt that was tucked um there were a couple different reports some said it was like near Brad and some said it was like near his feet some said you know but either way there was a sweatshirt at the crime scene that's the important part that yeah. um, written in like the neck of it you know how like, people write their names on their clothes whatever um, the name Backbone was written into the sweatshirt
0: Backbone he's got a backbone whoever it is, They'll mess with yeah. him yeah Backbone um
1: there was a single palm print on the car door. And then the murder was really like clean. It was not a messy crime scene. Like Kimberly was shot once in the head. Um Jill was also shot once in the head and Brad was shot in the abdomen.
0: Wait, so, so- pa- pause real quick. I I have two questions. So did did Brad die? I don't remember. Or is he still yeah, alive? I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, so he, when David came first got home, he thought he might be alive still, and he tried to resuscitate him and realized he was, you know, not alive. Okay, okay. Like he was I think he said that, yeah.
0: but I wasn't sure. And then my second question is, so when he came home, was it like, I don't know if you would know this or not, but was it like the garage is open, like they were about to go somewhere, or like the garage was closed, like they had just gotten home?
1: Well, I don't know actually if the garage was open or closed because it said when he got home, he saw his wife's body on the ground and was screaming her name as he was running up to it. So I don't know if maybe the garage was closed like they had just gotten home. I imagine they just got home because she probably just picked them up from school Yeah, Um, because the timeline was that. It was, like, sort of the afternoon, not first thing in the morning. Like, she had been taking them to school and they were killed. It was, like, probably after she picked them up. So they are probably coming home. Okay, um, got you, got you. But, yeah, I don't know if the garage door was open or closed because he might have opened it as he got home. Right. it have just been open when he came around the corner. I don't know. I'm not sure of that. Um, Okay, so we got all this physical evidence. Um, and
0: wouldn't you believe that the physical evidence
1: didn't even come up in the first trial.
0: What? They didn't like talk about it at all. They were just like, no, we're gonna talk about the fact that um, this is what we think he did it.
1: (laughs) Now that's actually not 100% true. There was some physical evidence that they did talk about, but it was some inconclusive physical evidence. Now this next piece of information is really It's hard. It's rough to hear. Okay. Um, So the medical examiner said that when she was um, examining Jill's body, his daughter, um, she had blood in her undergarments and showed signs of what was, in her personal opinion, sexual assault, evidence of Mm, sexual assault.
2: No. Yeah.
1: Yeah but here's what, here's what sketches me out. Okay. The medical examiner said, in my personal opinion, it was sexual assault, but professionally, I can't rule out other explanations. What? So yeah, that's, that's just weird to me because listen, when you're a kid, there's you know, there's a very real possible possibility that she might have been molested. And I don't want to downplay that possibility. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I am trying to say that they didn't even try to investigate this at all because that was, that was just it. They took it like that. They didn't investigate, ask teachers or anything if she had ever said anything to anybody. They just took the medical examiner's word for it. But when you're a kid, like one time, I know a girl who literally had to get stitches, you know, uh-uh, because she had
0: wrecked her bicycle.
1: I mean, yeah. when you're a kid,
0: you're just, you're just like swapping around all over the place. Right. I remember so, my like, cousin jumping into a pool one time and she like jumped too close to like the edge and like smacked like, you know, her private parts on the cement of like the in-ground pool and it was bleeding and yeah. she was like seven.
2: Yeah.
1: So, I mean, listen, if she was molested, that's horrifying. But they didn't even, they didn't even investigate if that's what was going on. Yeah. They just said there's some, you know, she didn't even say specifically. She just said signs of sexual assault, which could be anything. Right. Yeah. Um, And the timeline of that, of the injuries that she's talking about specifically is 12 to 24 hours. And it's significant. Because if it was closer to the 12-hour mark, it couldn't have been David because he left early in the morning for work before the kids went to school. So it had been over 12 hours since he had seen her. But if it was closer to 24, potentially, if she was being molested, there is a possibility it could have been him. They didn't investigate it. They They didn't dig any deeper into that. They just saw that possibility and ran with it. So they enter this first trial and this is how it goes. Okay. So they begin parading these women testifying that they had an affair. Um, Shoot. I need to back up because I forgot one piece of physical evidence. No, you're good. So, okay. So they took that whole thing about the possible molestation. They just ran with it. And then there's this other sketchy piece of physical
2: evidence.
0: Oh no. Let's hear it.
1: (laughs) From this quote unquote expert we'll talk about him in a in a minute. Remember him because okay. this guy so this whole bloody crime scene, this horrific triple murderer David cam, when his clothes are tested, the only blood on him is eight eight microscopic. Blood spatters on his sweatshirt. I'm sorry, yeah. You, you, you shoot three people, especially two children in a vehicle, you gotta get pretty close for that. You're gonna get a lot more blood on you than eight microscopic splatters. Yeah, 100%. But this expert said, and he was very bold, he said, it is. Without a doubt, high-velocity impact splatter, and the only way to have made this pattern was to shoot someone from four feet away.
0: No, it's me going in and checking my wife's body, stupid.
1: Yes. What David said, which is much more likely to me, and you'll hear later that other experts agree, um, if you've been a crime enthusiast for like five seconds or seen a single episode of Forensic Files, you know what high-velocity impact splatter is. Okay. And if you're shooting from someone from four feet away, you're going to get a whole heck of a lot more than that. But this amount seems much more consistent with when he leaned across his daughter's body to get to his son
2: mm-hmm.
1: and touched her bloody hair. Like, does that... That seems to make more sense of how he would get eight microscopic splatters on him.
0: Yeah, I'm sorry, but, but anybody that knows anybody that owns a gun or the gun knows that if you're standing four feet away from somebody and shoot, there's no way that you're not gonna get your whole fucking I'm sorry, your whole front covered. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're
1: yeah. No, like it's one hundred percent messy. It's a messy situation. Um, But, yeah, that's what the prosecution's experts said. So let's fast forward to the trial. So in 2002, so two whole years of all this, he had to endure. Well, not quite two whole years because it was towards the end of 2000. But either way, a very long time to have to go through this ordeal. David begins his trial. Um, And they begin by parading out the women that testified to having an affair with him at one point or another And it ranged from, you know, like a full-on affair to, like, you know, sharing of confidences and more of, like, what people would call, like, an emotional affair. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so do with that what you will. But either way, it's women that he had a deep emotional connection with, at the very least. So that's the jury's first impression of this man, is kind of a womanizer and not really a family man. Mm. The next, they bring out their... to talk about how that's high velocity impact slaughter the only way it could have gotten there is to have been standing four feet from the victim and he had to have been the shooter like that is the only way that pattern would appear on his sweatshirt which i would just be rolling my eyes so hard if i was on that jury like i get in 2002 like forensic files was still pretty new show but i mean come
0: on turn on the tv people yeah, no, I'm so sorry, but a 15-year-old would know that. Like, I'm sorry, quote-unquote expert. you got to go. Yeah. he's He's You've been insane. voted off the island.
1: Yeah. Um, but then the defense brought in their own expert to say, you know, that his splatter on his sweatshirt is 100% consistent with the story that he told of reaching across his daughter and definitely not enough blood to have been, the shooter from four feet away. Right. Um, but of course the defense expert I don't know why he seems less credible because two months of the trial, um, and the jury deliberated for three days and found him
3: guilty. Oh my gosh.
1: Because they believed the prosecution's story that he didn't want to be a family man anymore and that he molested his daughter and he was sentenced. Instant- Sentenced to 195 years in prison.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, he worked for two and a half years um, with an appeals attorney. I mean, that's not, like, that's not a thing. It's an attorney who specializes in appeals um, mm-hmm. to help get his conviction reversed. And it was. Like, um, they, the court reversed his conviction saying that um the infidelity biased the jury and that really wasn't fair at all um Mm -hmm. because none of the affairs were active they were all passed and like it just it prejudiced the jury was not fair it was not admissible in a new trial so that's good news for david camp like we're looking at yeah so david's looking at this like okay we're going to get a new trial we're not going to talk about infidelity. We're going to talk about the physical evidence, which proves that I'm not the one who murdered my family. I, I yeah. feel like that's how he's got to be feeling and, like, hopeful for this new case. Well, you'd be ding-dang wrong, David. Um, <laughs> because the new prosecutor, so the first prosecutor, corrupt. New prosecutor, spoiler alert,
0: also corrupt. Oh, we love it. Corruption. Woohoo! Oh, yeah. America! Um, did, did absolutely
1: no new investigation on anything.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Nothing. The only thing they did was question the 11 people he was playing with basketball to see if they would crack or change their story. Newsflash, none of them did. None of them changed their story. They all stuck to it. Um, <laughs> they instead you know, decided to focus on the molestation. That was going to be their motive. Their motive now was that he was molesting his daughter. He didn't want it to get out. So he killed the whole family.
3: Oh my gosh.
1: So then the defense is like, um, we need to look at this physical evidence. So the sweatshirt, when it was tested for DNA, had come back with an unknown male and female um dna profile Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and they also hadn't tested the palm print and what 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 are
0: they doing bro like what you guys did nothing i'm so sorry side note but you did nothing you just looked at the dad said oh yeah this this will be an easy charge and like you didn't (sighs) okay go. go i know and it's he's a former cop
1: too i'm like You guys are turning on one of your own right here. Like that doesn't happen unless like one of them is like blatantly like a monster,
0: right? And And not not only that,
1: raking him over the coals right here,
0: right? And not only that, but because he's a former police officer, do you really think he's stupid enough to shoot his wife four feet behind her in his own garage and kill his children in his own garage and then call you from his own garage? No, like what?
1: Yeah. Yes it's crazy. It's crazy to me. All this is crazy. And it's just going to get more frustrating from here. I'm sorry. I hate to tell you before it gets better, it's going to get a lot worse. So the sweatshirt and the palm print that went untested were also not mentioned in the court case whatsoever. Mm. Like it wasn't even brought up by the prosecution, which I don't even understand how you cannot do physical evidence, which I know, I know. Back in 2002, like DNA was a new thing, but they had a full-on palm print. Like fingerprints were like law of the land back
0: then. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And they didn't even test it. Um. But this time around, the defense attorneys brought it up, I guess. And the original prosecutor basically was like, "Oh, you know, I made the request, but it must not have been submitted. You know, whoops, my bad."
0: Mm. Yeah, you're bad.
1: Like, this man, at this point, has been sitting in in jail, you know, mourning the loss of his entire life, his entire family, for, like,
0: going on five years now. Oh, your life, your family, your reputation, like, everything. Yeah, my B. No big deal. My B. Sorry. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. so this became the defense. Um, number one. Number one priority here. So, setting up for the second trial, it was going to be moved to another county, and David was let out on bond finally. So, new trial, or new county, new trial, out on bond, like, this is looking up. Um, Here's crazy. The DNA finally came back, the male profile came back matching a convicted felon Mm -hmm. released just before the murders. His name is Charles Bonet. You want to guess what his nickname is? Oh, oh, my gosh. Is it Bonehead? Backbone. Or
0: Backbone. Whatever. Same Same crap. He's a bonehead.
1: <laughs> his nickname is Backbone.
0: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. Um, just a little bit of his backstory because it's very important. And to me – I feel like this is the dude like right off the bat. I don't know what took him so long.
3: Yeah. Um, his crime
1: story started in 1989 um, when he was a student at Indiana State University where he was also studying education which is terrifying. Um, he was arrested for three counts of robbery, attempted robbery, aris- resisting arrest and four counts of battery. Oh my um, goodness. And when he was When he was caught, he was attacking a few women. And was trying to take one of the women's shoes. Oh my gosh! The shoe thing, remember? Yeah, the does he have like a shoe fetish? Yes, he has a shoe fetish. <gasps> like multiple, multiple cases of him like being violent or stealing things it was like he was like different times to try to steal shoes off the feet of women or like out of their rooms or something.
0: Does he? Does he have a name? This killer. Charles like, Bonnet. No, but, like, do they call him anything?
1: No, he didn't kill anybody until, well, allegedly at this point in the story, allegedly the family. Oh,
0: um, he
1: wasn't a killer. He was just, like, he would just attack women, you
0: know. <laughs> I feel like I've bad. heard just, just an attack. Right, um, yeah, just a, just a quick stabby stabby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> <That's terrible.
0: laughs> um,
1: yeah, so the dude's nickname is freaking Backbone. His DNA is found in a sweatshirt that was at the crime scene. And then you want to know who came up when they tested the palm print finally? Who? Our good friend Charles Bonet.
0: Oh my goodness, Charles.
1: So listen, to me, this is a slam freaking dunk. Yeah, obviously. The shoes on the roof of the car. The guy has a shoe fetish. DNA on the sweatshirt with his nickname on it in the vehicle of the dead family and his palm print matches the palm print found in the vehicle.
3: Slam dunk.
1: Like, slam dunk. That's just, just, to me, that's just, like, open and shut. Like, there it is. Okay. Sorry, David Cam. Like, we screwed up. Like, this is the guy, you know? Um, Yeah. Not even close. (gasps) It's about to go down oh
0: yeah (laughs) so
1: yeah um so really sketchy things start to happen as soon as he becomes um like as soon as he comes on everyone's radar so of course they bring him in for questioning and he says that he knew all about what was going on like he knew about this family murder and he said it was because like he grew up in that town like because everybody in that town knew exactly what was going on. Like, it was a big thing, which, I mean, I imagine it would be. Right. But, like, he kept he kept going on and on and on, like, oversharing, which yeah. is a telltale sign of a guilty conscience. If you yeah. are a true crime fan, you know this, this is often mm-hmm. the case with some perps. Um, then he, when, when he was asked about the sweatshirt, he said, oh, yeah, you know, that was my sweatshirt, my prison sweatshirt, that's why my nickname was in it. But since I got released, I donated it to the Salvation Army. And then that's probably where that unidentified female DNA came into play because it was just probably some random person who touched it at Salvation Army.
0: Mm. Liar.
1: Like, to me, you you really thought your story out here, buddy, a lot. Yeah, you really sat down and
0: wrote a novel.
1: Yeah. And he said in his, like, initial interview – that there would be no evidence found to put him at the crime scene. But even if you take the sweatshirt out of the question, like, his palm print is on the car. Right, right. You touched something, idiot. Like, he said he didn't know them at all, so how the heck else is your palm print going to be on the car?
0: He slapped the car while they were driving on the road. Bring brought <laughs>
1: Yeah, just how? Just... I've been just
0: this random car <laughs> but
1: really? I don't know them. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So then something else sketchy that went down, which I'm, I can't go into all the sketchy things. It would take me literally, like, an entire series of podcasts to do it. <laughs> but he had a cousin that was on the police force who met with him um, off the record shortly after he was first brought in. And then his cousin took Kimberly Cam, the the mom, David's wife, took her cell phone out of evidence without checking it out and took it back to his personal residence. Oh, my goodness. What? So we can't really know, like, what the significance of that is. Um, But doesn't that seem a little bit sketchy? Because that could potentially be erasing any sort of, like, motive, because we don't know his motive. Like, that's mm-hmm. the one thing. That's the one thing that's missing from this Charles Bonet guy is his motive. But of course, you know, here we go. Our buddy Chuck has an answer for everything. Um, okay. <laughs> he says he has all kinds of conflicting confessions throughout this whole process. So I'm just going to. I'm going to just jump from that initial one to the one he sticks with at trial, because it's whiplash trying to keep up with all this guy's <laughs> <sighs> um, So right before the second trial, they arrest Charles and release David um, and initially drop char- charges on David. And so David's like, oh my gosh, like slam dunk. They finally figured it out, just kidding. Literally like a moment after they dropped the charges, they arrested him again as a co-conspirator on the murder of his family.
0: Oh my gosh.
1: So at this point they're just like determined to get their guy, you know? Like yeah. they're determined, they're determined to see David Cam burn. Yeah. Um so they go on trial separately, but like at the same time and they're both um they both like testify in each other's. Actually, I don't know if David testified in Um, Charles but I know Charles testified in David's trial but this is this is Charles story and also prosecution's theory it's just a combination of their attack on David at this point so um, that the idea is that David met Charles at a basketball game and um, Charles disclosed that he was a former felon and you know, which that's what you often do when you're talking to a former state trooper. I wouldn't. Um, yeah. Whatever. That's the story, and they're sticking with it. Um. But so Charles says that he met him. You know, they talked about how he's a former felon, and David recruits him to help him kill his family. Uh,
0: for what purpose?
1: I, I don't. I, they're sticking with the molestation thing. Oh, okay. Okay. He, he wants to. He wants to get it out um so basically this the final story is that um charles brought a gun that david is going to buy from him and use and then once charles showed up david said you're going to go down for this and then pop 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 kills the fam and then when he goes to kill charles the gun jams and that's the only way charles survived and now i is? and this this is This is a little detail he threw in there, too. Like, this is how he covers it up. (laughs) He says, so the gun jammed, and then I ran for my life, but I tripped over Kimberly's shoes, so I set them out of the way on top of the car.
0: Oh, so you just decided to pick the shoes up real quick while somebody was trying to shoot you. Yeah.
1: Like, there's this crazy murderer who killed his whole family, and I tripped over (laughs) his wife's shoes. But, you know, let me put them out of the way, you know, while I'm running away from him.
2: What the heck?
1: This is such a stretch. It's so crazy. Um, so listen to this. So after the second trial, this is not funny at all. But (laughs) I'm going over and over this story, and I'm literally being driven insane by it because I just I just can't anymore with the stupidity. So David and Charles, I almost said Charles. Yeah, it is Charles. Charles, my best. David and Charles um are both found guilty what as co-conspirators charles is sentenced to 220 years which good so david appealed and he again had his conviction overturned um, and the court said that they couldn't talk about jill being molested Because there wasn't any proof that she was molested. And beyond that, there wasn't proof that David was the one molesting her.
2: Mm -hmm. So
1: they said that would be inadmissible in a new trial. (laughs) So the poor man, oh, my gosh, he's gearing up for a third trial. Oh, this this? poor guy. No, this poor guy. Can you believe this at this point? I just can't. So as they're gearing up for this third trial. I just, I can't. (laughs) The former blood expert, remember him? The one who said that the only way that this blood spatter could be in the pattern was if he was four feet away from the victim and he was the shooter.
0: Oh, yeah, the genius. We love him.
1: He, he, He falsified all of his credentials.
3: Oh, my gosh.
1: Yeah. And then every expert consulted pretty much agreed with what the defense said in the first place, the defense expert, that there's no way that little blood would be on him, that it would be way, way, way more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so so that, that came out. They dealt with that, thank goodness. So that was finally addressed because they're running out of stuff here. They can't go after the molestation. They can't go after the affairs. They can't go after anything. So the third time the prosecution is gearing up to say that um, he's he's after his wife's life insurance mm-hmm. which is like I think it was like between her and k and her life insurance was like $600,000 which listen that's a lot of money
3: mm-hmm. but
1: I don't think it's quite like just like your case I don't think it's quite kill your wife and children money
3: yeah. Yeah.
0: Especially like, as a former police officer, like, you know, they're going to look at you first.
1: Yeah. He's a former police officer and then he's retired and working for his family business. So like, I don't think the impression I got wasn't that they were exactly hurting for money. Yeah. So, I mean, not that cops make like a ton of money or anything, but still like their, their family was fine off. Um, so that's, that's the prosecution, is that he's going for the money now. That's their MO for him. Um, but then in this third trial, every single bit of physical evidence that we hadn't even heard about yet was released to the jury, finally. Mm, good. So there's even more Charles DNA here.
3: Oh, my goodness.
1: Charles' DNA was also found on Kim's underwear, her sleeve, her bracelet, her fingernails, and Jill's shirt. So all of this shows that he not only had contact with um, the vehicle and his sweatshirt, but he definitely touched Kimberly and Jill.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Like, that definitively has him touching both of them. So all of this forensic evidence comes out. The life insurance is a stretch. The jurors, you know, I mean, they don't know that, obviously. But, like, the defense is just knocking it out of the park. They're like, the prosecution has had three opportunities to portray a scene where David Cam is, without a doubt, the man who pulled the trigger and murdered his family. And they're failing to do so. So, like, the the defense just, like, knocked it out of the park. I I might have said the prosecution knocked it out of the park a second ago. That was a misspeak if I did because the prosecution sucks. The defense Mm -hmm. knocked it out of the park. This wonderful, beautiful, like, tied up with a nice bow. Like, I mean, at this point, I'm thinking, like, David Kahn's getting ready to just, like, hop up, roll out. And then you want to hear what the judge does?
0: Oh no! What this
1: this corrupt little twinkle? He <laughs> said he gave the jurors an option that even if they didn't think that David was the one who killed his family, even if they thought he was the one who just might have helped Charles along the way, they'll he'll allow them to have a guilty verdict. Oh my goodness! So like they, they really just wanted was... him up, yes. They don't have to believe that he was the one who killed them, but as long as he's a co conspirator, you know, even if you think he's a little bit, you know, in the wrong, you guys can convict him. But same thing is, yeah. this jury was not a bunch of ding dongs. Uh, they had some brains. Um, they came back um, on October 24th, 2013.
3: Oh, my goodness.
1: After 10 hours of deliberation, found him not guilty. So 13 years later, David is a free man.
3: Oh, my
0: goodness. This poor guy. He never really even got a chance to cope with
3: all his trauma, I feel like.
0: No. Literally 13 years, one
1: month, and four days. Mm. No, actually, four days short of a month. My math was bad. Um, As usual. (laughs) He's finally free. Um, so he tried to sue Floyd County in Indiana, um, but was dismissed because they said that they had probable cause to keep trying him, which I think is bogus, especially when the prosecution has come under fire as being one of the worst, um, like prosecution teams ever. They've been, um, They've gotten in trouble for errors in investigation, witness tampering, evidence tampering, and so, 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 so much more. I mean, obviously, in this case alone, I just – it makes me wonder how many other cases were mishandled by this prosecution team. Um, but whatever. But, yeah, David failed, uh, or his his suit was dismissed. um he collected a little over half a million from his wife's life insurance and 401K. And then you want to hear what happened next?
0: What? Something awful.
1: Kimberly's family sued him (gasps) for her life insurance and 401K because they wholeheartedly believed David to be the killer.
0: Oh, my gosh. So did they get it?
1: Yep. Oh, my goodness. So this man lost his wife, he lost his children, lost 13 years of his life, and then he's given half a million dollars to start his life over, and then his wife's family sues him because they believe he's a murderer.
3: Mm, my goodness, bro.
1: I just want to find David Kim, not to, like, intrude on his life or anything, but just, like, you know, can I bake you some brownies, buddy? Like. Right. Do you need a hug? Can I cook you some meals? Can I just... You can come to my family Christmas.
0: Right.
1: Can I do anything? (laughs) Like, this poor, poor man.
0: That is so, so terrible. Does it say anything about what happened to him after that?
1: No, I didn't look up anything about what his life has been like after... And honestly, I don't think there's much about it because I think he has probably just kept to himself.
0: Yeah, that's so sad, dude, to lose your whole family, go through all of that, and then your wife's family, just, like, hate your guts And, like, I don't know, but, like, as that other family, like, did you, were you just listening to everything the prosecutors were saying, or were you actually, like, looking at the evidence for yourself and being like, no, that doesn't logically make sense, you know? Yeah, I
1: find from what the family said because I was just devastated by that I was just like oh my gosh that's horrifically sad and I was also angry at them too um, mm-hmm. but they said that um, Jill was a fighter and if she was being molested the only way she wouldn't have said anything was if it was her dad so they just they really believed the whole molestation thing
3: Ugh. That is so yeah. awful, man. That poor dude. I wonder what he's doing now. Hopefully- I don't know, but I hope he's got a good
1: life. Like, you know, David Cam, if you ever hear this podcast, you know, I'm worried about you, buddy.
0: I'm <laughs> worried about you. Please check in.
1: Yeah, man. Like,
0: we love you. <laughs> we love We're you. Sorry. We know we-, <laughs> we know you didn't do it, David.
1: Yeah. I'm sorry it took your stupid county 13 years to get you
0: free. Yeah, the same county that you served. Oh, man, that's so awful, man. Both of those are just terrible. Like, both people being wrongfully convicted of killing their kids. Yeah. And what's really
1: horrific to me is that these horrible legal system failures happen in our country where, like, it's been created to have this, like, fair and equal system. And, like, this kind of crap still goes down. And then I think about the countries who they don't really give a frick about a fair trial. Like, how much worse it is even there. So, like, even us who we're supposed to have this fair system and we don't, like, how bad it must be in countries where it's just like, you know what, you stole, you're dead.
0: Right. Yeah. But They're so focused on how many people they can get in there that they don't care about anything else
1: yeah it's just it's all a mess i mean when you when you put your trust in people to keep things running like people fail, people suck like
0: ugh, it's horrible, yeah people are trash um corrupt people are trash, corrupt lawyers, cops, judges, everyone stop arresting these innocent people, yeah it's just
1: it's all bad. That's why I wanted to be a lawyer.
0: <laughs> I know. I I remember that. I told somebody like yesterday, the day before I was like, we were talking about, you know, jobs and like the law and stuff like that. And I was like, look, like I, in another lifetime, like I would be a forensic analyst. But the problem is, is like the reason I never went into like any sort of law enforcement or like law in general is like, And I'm not saying they're all like this. Like, obviously, that's impossible to say. But I'm just saying, like, for a majority of it, like, there's so much corrupt that, like, I didn't want to go into that and, like, try and be forced to try and do something, you know, that I shouldn't for my job title because I wouldn't. So it's, like, that's why I never did that. And that's why a lot of people don't go into law enforcement or any kind of law in general, you know?
1: Yeah. It's all, it's just, it's a mess.
0: That it is, my girl. Well, you guys, that was our legal system failure episode. I hope that you enjoyed that and maybe learned something. Sorry for any mispronunciations on my end. I'm not very smart.
1: <laughs> Same here.
0: <laughs> well, you guys, We're a thank you. Yeah, we are a mess. We're a hot mess, like Ed Kemper. <laughs> not that bad. I'm just
2: Need to go to bed. Uh, I definitely need to go to bed.
0: Well, you guys, (laughs) until the next episode, I don't think Hannah and I. I think we talked and we decided that we're not going to do themes for the next couple episodes because I feel like the themes kind of limit us to stories. Um, And I know. Come at you with some Rams. So right here we go. Um, (laughs) So I think that taking the themes away, at least for a little bit, kind of gives us a bigger field to work with. So. The next episode is going to be a rando again, though. If you, guys have, right, if you guys have any requests, like, please send them, like, I hate myself. I'm tired. If you guys have any requests, <laughs> yeah. please um, send them over to us on Instagram at suspect podcast. Um, and there should be a link in our Instagram bio now where you guys can actually record this voice memos. So something Hannah and I was talking about is if any of you listening have Any crazy stories that happened to you, your uncle, your aunt, your best friend, mom, dad, whoever, anything close to you that you know the details of that is a crazy story, even if it's not a murder, please go ahead and send them on over to us. Whether that's on Instagram or you record that on The Voice memo, we would love to hear it and play it on here if you guys send something in. Yeah, do it. Do it do it do it do it do it well until (laughs) then guys yeah
3: this is what happens on Wednesday when you've been working all week oh yeah (laughs) oh my gosh I need to be shut up okay Uh, yeah thanks for
0: listening guys I'm sorry (laughs) Hannah with the ad (laughs) no guys thanks so much again for listening we love you guys we hope everybody's staying safe please be kind wash your hands Wear a mask. Don't cough on anyone. Until next time. Bye ya. Bye.